Welcome to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Just ahead on today's show, we'll talk with a leader from the Southern University Laboratory Virtual School about the challenges K-12 education has faced since the pandemic and how that virtual school has addressed some of those issues. Also, Cinema on the Bayou. It's an international film festival. It's taking place in Lafayette right now, running through the end of the month. We'll hear from the director of that festival, and we'll talk about the films and what there is to enjoy there. But first, Louisiana lawmakers are headed back to the state capitol months ahead of schedule. On Monday, they'll gavel in a seven-day special session with just one agenda item to set aside $45 million for cash incentives to lure insurance companies back to the state. Insurance Commissioner Jim Donilon says it's an essential step in addressing the state's soaring premiums for homeowners. But lawmakers aren't so sure. And here to discuss that with us is Capital Access reporter Paul Braun. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Adam. So, Paul, what's what exactly is the goal here? Yeah, well, the main goal is to get customers out of the Louisiana Citizens Property Insurance Corporation. That's the state's insurer of last resort. And it's really a landing place for the riskiest insurance policies in the state. The state doesn't want policyholders to linger there. There are huge legally mandated rate hikes for policyholders who stay with the company for more than a year. And those rate hikes are starting to kick in for many customers, about 10000 per month. But there aren't enough private insurers willing to take on those policies. Mm-hmm. I can imagine the state doesn't want to hold on to those insurers, the same reason the insurance companies might not want to. So what is the state trying to uh, planning to address to try to do that? How will they lure those companies? So this $45 million Jim Donilon is requesting would go to the Insure Louisiana Incentive Program. Uh, lawmakers set up this program last spring, but they didn't appropriate any money for its operations. So it's just mm-hmm. sitting idle right now. And this program would provide grants in the $2 million to $10 million range for companies. There are strings attached. For example, if a company receives $5 million from the state, it will eventually have to write at least $20 million worth of policies in the state. And at least half of those have to be in specific parishes that have been deemed high risk. Um, And then those companies would have to stick around for at least five years. Uh, There are also some additional requirements that Donilon hopes will prevent those companies that are lured to the state from getting into the same financial troubles that have sunk eight insurance companies since the devastating 2020 and 2021 hurricane seasons. Now, lawmakers were already due back at the Capitol in April for the regular session. So what's the urgency? Well, aside from those rate hikes we talked about earlier, insurance companies have to buy reinsurance, which is just what it sounds like. Insurance policies companies take out to protect their policyholders and their business against catastrophic losses from hurricanes or other natural disasters. Uh, This is really important. State auditors found that inadequate reinsurance levels was the largely the largest contributor to the those eight insolvencies that precipitated this crisis. And it's much more expensive to get reinsurance reinsurance when a large portion of policies cover areas that are particularly prone to hurricane damage. And these companies need to purchase the policies now if they want to set up shop and start writing insurance policies in the state before this year's hurricane season. Many wouldn't be able to afford to or would be unwilling to take on these policies without the state incentives. And Donilon says that seven companies have already expressed interest in the program, but we haven't heard from those companies directly. And, and that's something lawmakers have requested for this session. 
Now, I understand there is some precedent for this. The state took a similar approach after Hurricanes Katrina and Rita in the past. How did that work out? Yeah, after those storms, the insurance market in the state was in similarly dire straits. Back then, Donilon pushed for a $100 million incentive program, and it eventually doled out about $29 million. Um, in 2008, the state started up a program focused on specifically getting homeowners policies out of the state safety net citizens and getting them covered by private insurers. And it worked in doing that. The, de the depopulation program, as it was called, offloaded 129,000 citizens policies of the last decade. But many of those homeowners ended up with fledgling and fly-by-night insurance companies more than half of them were either declared insolvent, were absorbed by another company, or just stopped writing policies in the state. And that left many policyholders to scramble for a new insurer in a tough part of the state to find an insurer. And, and even worse, holding the bag with unfilled claims after a storm. Hmm. So knowing that, can you read the tea leaves a little bit for us in the minute we have left? Uh, what exactly do you think we'll see this session? Well, legislative leaders' support for this is pretty tepid. House Speaker Clay Schecht-Snyder likened this incentive program to a Band-Aid covering a much larger, larger wound. And he and Senate President Paige Cortez both said they'd like to see broader action during the regular session to address this insurance crisis. But because the scope of the session is so narrow, we aren't likely to see that debate veer off into those other areas. There are uh, a few factors play into Donilon's hands for possibly getting this passed. First, the measure only needs a simple majority to pass instead of the two-thirds we typically see on spending and tax bills. And second, the state is once again flush with cash. Lawmakers have about $1.5 billion more to appropriate in the upcoming budget cycle than they initially thought. Whatever happens is likely to happen quickly. The session will end no later than February 5th. All right. Capital Access reporter Paul Braun, thanks for your time today. Anytime. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Considered. Schools have faced some unique and unprecedented challenges over the past two years with interruptions to learning, pandemic precautions, the rapid adoption of virtual teaching. We wanted to speak with a local virtual school about what they have faced emerging from the pandemic. The Southern University Laboratory Virtual School in Baton Rouge is being recognized next week by the State Department of Education for its progress despite extraordinary obstacles as uh, what is deemed a Louisiana comeback campus. The school has improved on the metrics with which the state measures schools, including mastery levels and ACT scores. With us today, Nadia Seals, director of the virtual school at Southern University Laboratory Virtual School. Uh, thanks for being on the program today. Thank you so much for having me. So Nadia, tell me where the Southern University Laboratory Virtual School is coming from and what goals you've reached so far. What's the progress that you've made? Um, when I took over the program six years ago, we were a 30F, I want to say, on the school performance score. Um, this year, we had the opportunity to move up to a C. Um, so we have made great strides over the years. Of course, during the pandemic, many schools did have to transfer to virtual learning. However, that was something we were already doing. We did notice that prior to the pandemic, you know, virtual schools were the minority. It was something most people didn't understand. Most people you know, felt like, well, is it even necessary? Versus now, after going through the pandemic, most people understand our daily struggles um, because they've had to experience it firsthand. I want to ask you, when 
2020 rolled around, did you find yourself educating other schools about how to do virtual school? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Prior to the pandemic, you know, even when students enrolled in our school, because we are a statewide school, um, we deal with different districts. Um, And most districts will call and say, are you guys even a real school? And we're kind of like, yes, we are per the state of Louisiana. We are a public school. Um, After the pandemic, we had people calling saying, hey, can you tell me how you guys are making sure you get this done? How are you guys making sure your students are earning their credits? And it was interesting because it was a total change in what we had experienced prior to the pandemic. So public schools in many parts of the state are facing similar challenges. What does your student body look like compared to the traditional in-person public school? You're with the university's lab school, which has different specifics when it comes to enrollment. Can you tell me a little bit about how that plays into what the virtual school looks like? So we do have uh, enrollment criteria. It's only to have a 2.0 GPA. Um, However, we ask that you keep that once you're with us, but we know just as in a traditional school that fluctuates. Um, We've been very lenient on it, to be honest, because of the things that children have had to go through the past couple of years. Um, One of the things, you know, we try to make sure that our population actually looks like a traditional school. So we are a kindergarten through 12th grade combination school. My population, a lot of them are from rural areas. You know, a lot of times when people are in virtual, it's for a reason. So let's say it's a small area where there's only one school and they've had a very troubling experience at that one school. So they don't have options to go anywhere else. That's when a lot of times we see families come into virtual. We've had students that were enrolled in performing arts programs. And so virtual gave them the flexibility to be able to do both. Um, We've had students that were trained athletes. And they traveled a lot. Virtual gave them the flexibility to do that. So it's the same demographic, to be honest. We just have a little more flexibility in allowing them to be able to do all the things they want to do. Tell me about the challenges you saw for K-12 education emerging from the pandemic. And how have those challenges been different for virtual school? Um, so with the pandemic, of course, we, we now have some parents that post-pandemic are just not comfortable with their kids going back to school. Um, So virtual has become, as you said, more of an option. Even when we talk about just the culture of school and what's happening these days, you know, a lot of parents, when they take their kids to school, they're praying they can pick them up. With virtual school, you don't have to worry about that. Um, You know where your child is. Most times in virtual, the parent is a very integral part of the education process. A lot of times in public schools, you know, we're yearning for that opportunity for parents to be involved. In virtual, parents are very involved. How long has the virtual school been in existence? Uh, The virtual school has been in existence for 10 years now, um, and we partner with the company K-12. They're now known as Stride. Um, And so we have been with them since the inception of the school. Hmm. It seems like the virtual school market, if you will, has become a little more crowded lately with more options for parents and students. And the fact that the adoption itself of virtual classes with the pandemic has become a little bit more of a familiar and widespread thing lately. How does your school distinguish itself from other virtual schools and from virtual learning in general? Well, the state has a few statewide virtual schools. Um, Post-pandemic, you have a lot of school systems that are creating a virtual option, but it's just for that district. We are we are open to anyone. As long as you live in the state of Louisiana and you have a Louisiana residence, you can apply to our school. There are only three schools like that here in Louisiana. We are the smallest of the three schools. Our, we want to be able to have access to our students. Our students have access to us. We're speaking with Nadia Sills, director of the Southern University Lab Virtual School. Nadia, 
What tools, what strategies that are different from traditional public schools do you use to address the problems that we've been talking about coming out of the pandemic with virtual schools? Um, what, what have you been, you been doing to get from the, the F to the C? Well, really, to be honest, it's doing the same thing that you do in a traditional school. So a lot of times when people think of virtual, they think it's more laxed, it's more lenient, um, but it's not. We make sure our students get honor roll certificates. We try to make sure, you know, that everything they would get in a traditional school, they still get in a virtual school. We still have discipline problems. They're not the same, but we have them. Making sure there's structure. One thing I believe in is structure. If kids have structure, they're going to rise to the occasion. They're going to make sure they're following the rules. And a lot of times, like I said, virtual people go, oh, they get to do what they want. Not in our program, not necessarily. Now tell me about this honor. 41 schools and 20 school systems around the state received it this year. Talking with your fellow educators, what do these schools have in common? Um, so we're really excited about this opportunity, especially coming from, you know, a 30F. We've worked really hard to bring up our school, and it, it didn't happen overnight. It has taken years. But, you know, being able to increase our scores, mastery and above, and ELA and math has been something we've worked diligently each year. And not coming with an education background, ELA, that's English. English language arts. And tell me about some of those metrics, the, the ones you've improved with mastery scores. Can you tell me a little bit about those? Absolutely. So, um, you know, when we talk about the school performance score, there's so many pieces to it. Um, and we have some pieces that we're still working on. So, for instance, um, what we've done well is increasing our math scores and our ELA scores. One of the things we did with ELA is making sure that we put in more opportunities for the students to write um, and to be able to have rich text that they are, you know, going through and getting informational text when we were in school, a lot of the things that we read were fictional, um, whereas now we're moving more towards nonfiction things. And so they're not only getting that opportunity to write about rich information, but they're actually getting the history, the science of things that are happening. And so being able to put in those things to make sure that they are writing and the teachers going through their writing and helping them, because we know writing goes across the curriculum and increasing writing helps in all subjects. And we've seen where that has come to help us because even in the math, you know, our students are being asked to write now. It's not just five plus five equals 10. It's okay. How do we get to 10 and why is 10 correct? And so being able to write and explain your answer. And so we found that, you know, putting a push on the writing piece and the comprehension piece has really helped us across the board. Nadia Seals is Director of Virtual School at Southern University Laboratory Virtual School. Nadia, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Considered. Today marks the beginning of Cinema on the Bayou, a Lafayette festival that will offer screenings of nearly 200 films over eight days. As the second oldest juried international film festival in Louisiana, Cinema on the Bayou will offer features and documentaries from around the world while also highlighting local films and filmmakers that celebrate Louisiana's culture and history. For more on Cinema on the Bayou, we're joined by festival director Rebecca Hudsmith. Thanks for being here. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm glad to, to visit with you and your audience today about this important festival that I've been a part of for the last 18 years. 18 years. It's the 18th Cinema on the Bayou. You've been a part of it from the beginning, it sounds like. Can you tell us a little bit about how this festival got started and how it's grown and evolved over the years? Absolutely. Pat Meir, who is a filmmaker from 
Eunice, Louisiana, he lives here in Lafayette, uh, actually began Cinema on the Bayou in 2006. And as the story goes, you recall that there was a hurricane in New Orleans, and it was uh, as the result of Katrina, the New Orleans Film Festival did not take place that year in 2005. And so there was to be a French language film by André Gladue of Montreal. And so they were going to premiere it, world premiere at the New Orleans Film Festival. Didn't happen. Well, they knew Pat Meir and they said, hey, we heard you might start a film festival in Lafayette. We could uh, open it with the world premiere of André Gladue's film. And Pat said, I will start the film festival. Tell me a little bit more about that French-Canadian connection, French-Canadian filmmakers. How did that connection get started? And what are uh, some of the films and filmmakers from Canada that will be coming to the event this year? Well, the the connection, it started with the André Gladue connection that set the stage for the festival itself. Then after that, as we started as a very small um, festival, we were focused on cultural films. And over time, the word started getting out in uh, Quebec and Nova Scotia, but they started hearing more and more about us and realizing that their films and their work really fit with what we were trying to carve out. And before you knew it, we had filmmakers <laughs> speaking French in our house every night after the film festival. You mentioned French-speaking filmmakers. How about the French-language films? What proportion of the festival are the French-language films? And can you tell me a little bit about those films and where they're coming from? So the French-language films this year, at last count, we had 68. I mean, we have a film on Thursday night called The Secret Code. And it's something I never knew anything about till I saw the documentary. It's about the secret society of French-speaking Quebecois who would meet secretly to make sure that they protected their culture and their language. And you you weren't supposed to know who was a member of the society, but it was geared toward protecting the French language in a country that's also, you know, has the Queen of England as their monarch. So um, that's a fascinating film. You mentioned the strong ties with French Canada. Do you attract films from the greater Francophone world? The majority are from Canada. Even parts of Canada that I didn't realize were French speaking. We have a, a, a film from Belgium that's French language. That's a documentary about a, a female artist. Uh, we have a wonderful narrative short from a French filmmaker. So when I say French language and francophone, it can be from anywhere. And it's really cool. We're speaking with Rebecca Hudsmith, festival director at Cinema on the Bayou, which begins today in Lafayette. Rebecca, how is it that Lafayette attracted all of these people internationally and gets them to come back to Lafayette year after year for this festival? What is it about Lafayette? Well, I think in part, it's the people. I mean, this is a, a very warm-hearted and loving and accepting community, and, and you get that when you come here. I, I think it's also because of Pat Meir and He's a festival founder and artistic director, but he's a filmmaker. So he talks the filmmaker, independent filmmaker language. You know, he's gotten LEH grants and eaten bologna sandwiches to make a, a film and put all the money in the film and not on his dinner table. You know, he gets it. And tell me about some of the more anticipated films that are coming to the festival. We have specifically The Rage in 13 and Roots of Fire. Tell me about those two. 
So The Rage in 13 is a story I had sort of heard about, but little did I know how famous they really are and should be in Olympic weightlifting circles. I mean, this is a group of men who pretty much like on their own, uh, the University of Louisiana at Lafayette at the same time, this is like in the 60s, and put together this, you know, the power lifting people and competed and just did this incredible work. And they're all going to be there for the uh, opening night film, the world premiere screening of the film. It seems like the best way to open the festival, especially since we're celebrating the Lafayette Parish Bicentennial. And tell me about Roots of Fire. So Roots of Fire is a film that is making waves all over the country. The filmmakers, they're based in in New Orleans. They just put together a beautiful film about the music of Southwest Louisiana, the French music, the Cajun music. They interviewed several of the musicians. It's beautifully shot. The sound, you know, for a music-driven film, the sound is incredible. And then you really have the story of the music and the Cajun people told through these young musicians who are carrying on this beautiful tradition of French music. So this is a film festival. We know there's film screenings. What else is going on? Our panel, uh, our Sunday panel is going to be on experimental films. We're really looking forward to, you know, educating myself and our audiences on what this beast is that's called experimental film. As part of our presentation of the film screening, we also have a filmmaker Q&A after each film. And then uh, that often carries off over a glass of wine or a beer or, or a Coke. Uh, we talk with the filmmakers, the subject of the films, the movers and shakers of the films. And lastly, some people, when they hear about a film festival. They'll hear indie films and they might hear the term experimental and it might seem a little inaccessible. You might wonder, well, I watch Netflix. I like seeing a mainstream blockbuster or two on occasion, but this indie experimental film thing, you know, maybe I won't get it. I'm afraid I won't get it. What if it's not for me? What would you say to that? Well, first of all, the pure experimental films, they're going to be screening on uh, Sunday and the panel will follow, and I recommend it just because it's just, let's expand our minds. But throughout the festival, we have very approachable films. Like I said, whether it's, we have two films about autistic kids. Uh, We have many short films that are about relationships, about loss, about uh, coming of age. You know, we have several films that are uh, children themes. They're totally relatable to everybody. When I say independent, I mean, they're not some big Hollywood studio. They're real actors and actresses in them, but they're not, you know, Nicole Kidman, you know. And um, these these are films that are really from the heart. Um, like we have a film called Shutterbugs. It's a feature film and it's a mystery and it's a thriller and it's beautifully shot and well done. And it'll end up on Netflix, so... Come to our festival and see some of those before they're on Netflix. We've been speaking with festival director Rebecca Hudsmith with Cinema on the Bayou. You can catch the film festival in Lafayette from today through February 1st. Rebecca, thanks for being here today. Thank you. 
And that's been Louisiana Considered this Wednesday. I'm Adam Voss. Thank you to Capitol reporter Paul Braun, our guest Nadia Seals with Southern University Laboratory School, Laboratory Virtual School, and again, Rebecca Hudsmith with Cinema on the Bayou. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman, Aubrey Purcell, and Thomas Walsh. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Mondays through Fridays at noon and 7.30 p.m. here on this station. And that podcast is available on Spotify, Google Play, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. I'm Adam Voss. Thanks for listening. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health. This is-